This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Women have given birth to babies for as long as humankind has existed. But when did the medicalization of childbirth become the norm? It is only in relatively recent times that birthing was taken out of the domestic arena and hospital birth became the dominant model. But is this the best option for women and their babies? Today on the Gender Card Podcast, we speak to Professor Jenny Gamble, the Head of Midwifery at Griffith University and Director of the Transforming Maternity Care Collaborative. She's leading innovative research based on principles of gender empowerment and gender equality that is crossing traditional boundaries and aiming for a complete redesign of the maternity care system. Despite overwhelming evidence showing its benefits, few women have access to the ideal model of midwives providing continuity of care. Professor Jenny Gamble hopes this project changes that, giving women more choice and control in the way they bring their babies into the world with better health outcomes for all. Jenny, welcome to The Gender Card. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful to have you. So can you tell us about your research team and this really innovative research that you're doing, particularly around this model of the Transforming Maternity Care Collaborative. So midwifery practice needs this transformation, does it? Hmm. The focus of the collaborative is not just midwifery. It's not just midwifery. Midwifery, It's wider than that. It's much wider than Mm. that. And we definitely have a range of people in the collaborative who are not midwives. For instance, obstetricians, psychologists, uh, public health experts. However, if we're going to transform maternity care, the keystone to all of that is primary maternity care provided by midwives because the evidence is compelling. And you've brought everyone on board to be part of that, which I think from what from my reading is part of the problem. It was very fragmented. Yeah, care broadly has been very fragmented and maternity services also are very fragmented. Fragmented in funding, fragmented in policy. So I'm not suggesting for one minute that midwives deliver everything. But the primary model for maternity care should be continuity of care by a known midwife. We know the evidence is there. There's now high-level evidence, level one evidence, that shows that women and their babies have much better outcomes if they have the same midwife all the way through the pregnancy, through the labour and birth, and after the birth in that transition to motherhood. So they have lower rates of intervention. They have less admission to the special care nursery. Their babies are 24% less likely to be born preterm. There's a 16% reduction in fetal loss. So we know on every indicator, mothers and babies do better. What we haven't managed to do is to make that universally available. So it's not available at the moment, Jenny? It's not universally available. Mm. So when you've got a fragmented model where you see different care providers potentially or you might see the same care provider during the pregnancy but a different one for labour and birth... Models that are fragmented don't produce the same outcomes. Uh, The estimate in Australia is about 10% of Australian women get access to this continuity of midwifery care. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable relative to the the high-level evidence. 
And that's because of structure and system problems. Why is it such a low rate, 10 to 20%? I think people would be quite shocked to hear that. Yeah, it, look, the rate is low. 10% is, uh, even then, is a, uh, a best estimate because despite the evidence, this is not something that's routinely measured. So we don't routinely capture in all of the data collection that we do nationally women's access to continuity midwifery care. It's coming but a whole lot of things have been coming, coming. So if I take us back a little bit, we've, in Australia, and this picture is mirrored globally, especially in OECD countries, the first large review, large public review of maternity services was in 1989, and it was a review of obstetric services, it was called, but a review of maternity services in New South Wales. It's been called the Shearman Report after the chair and author of the report. And the things in that report are the same things that have come up in every other report since, whether it's a service-based report, a regional report, a state report, or a national report. So every review of maternity services, and there have been many, so many. We've had Senate inquiries, Rocking the Cradle, we've had national uh, review of maternity services, uh, we've had a state one here in Queensland called Rebirthing in 2005. So we've done lots and lots and lots of reviews. It sounds like Royal Commissions, doesn't it? Lots and lots and lots of reviews, and they all say fundamentally the same thing, that women want choice and control, that we need to uh, provide more community-based services, that we need to provide more continuity of midwifery care, that we need to give access to private midwives to have visiting rights to hospital, and we have to tackle the high rates of medicalisation and obstetric intervention. Those problems were named back in 1990, and they've been named in every review since including the most recent review. So what's stopping them being implemented, Jenny? Is it systemic problems? Is that what's underlying this? So uh, there is uh, an understanding, I think, broadly in health that it's a huge system that is difficult to change. And I'm sympathetic to that. However, if they are, as they say they are, committed to value-based healthcare and they say that they're committed to access and equity and they have goals and ideals around that, then you would think that this would be a no-brainer. So continuity midwifery care, same midwife, same named midwife. You've got her mobile number, right? So you, she's available to you all of the time throughout your pregnancy, labour and birth and afterwards. And she's got a backup midwife or two. So we know that works and there's variations on the model, but this notion of ability of the woman to contact her midwife midnight and say I'm worried about my vaginal loss I think I might have ruptured my membranes I haven't felt the baby move all day now I can't get to sleep uh, whatever whatever the woman's concern is she's got a sort of speed dial to her own midwife who can provide direct care as a midwife and who can navigate her way through the system so that she gets all of the services that she needs when she needs them. And she's got that established relationship. She knows what's happened up to that point. It all makes sense. And the key, and we think this is the theory underlying why it works, you know, the theory of change. The key to all of that is a trusting relationship with somebody who knows you and cares about you. And, you know, we have this thing called proximity. The better we know each other, the more we understand each other and our backgrounds and why we are, how we are, and, you know, who we are, 
then the, then we feel validated by that. We feel trusted. We feel confidence, and all of those things also impact on all of the range of other outcomes. You know, it reduces your stress and anxiety levels. It helps you get the care that you need when you need it. And you just feel like you've got somebody on your side. And that's what women repeatedly say. So women love this model. Wherever it's available, they ask for it and there's high demand. We also know from our workforce-related research that midwives have lower levels of stress and burnout in this model, despite the idea that they're on call for women, except for their two days off a week, virtually all of the time, they still benefit in terms of feeling greater autonomy over their work, greater agency. Midwives come into midwifery just about all the time to make a difference to the lives of people that they look after. They can feel they can make a more impactful difference. They can see the impact of that care over time and what influence that has with the woman herself, her baby and her family. So it's very, very powerful. Why is only 10% of women nationally getting it? <laughs> Yeah, killer question. And that's really why we brought together the Transforming Maternity Care Collaborative. So what is causing really that slow pace of change? So I think the slow pace of change in Australia really is the killer question. How come, with this compelling evidence, benefits to women and families, benefits to, to midwives, it's cost-effective? Why is this not the universal foundational model for the way we provide maternity services in Australia? And really that's why we formed the Transforming Maternity Care Collaborative. The four big program areas, practice translation, workforce, education, health promotion. And then there's five themes that run through that. First, peoples. We know that Aboriginal mothers and babies have worse outcomes than non-Indigenous Australians. Policy, legislation, funding and regulation. So we really are trying to tackle, uh, which is ambitious, we are really trying to tackle system level change whilst continuing to generate evidence around gaps in our knowledge. So, for instance, we did a lovely scoping review last year of the process of hospital accreditation. The healthcare system spends a lot on uh, mandatory hospital accreditation. There's structures and processes all set up for that. But we know about accreditation uh, in aged care, for instance. Has it worked fantastically? No, it doesn't seem to be. And quite frankly, that's the same in maternity care. We've got this enormous accreditation system. We have trained accreditors come into hospitals and uh, see if the health service meets the prescribed standards. But nowhere in that process has it driven the evidence into practice. Nowhere in that process has it changed a maternity service from not offering continuity to care to offering a lot or universal access to continuity and medical care. So what's the point? The point can't simply be of hospital accreditation to show that you're doing the same old, same old in a very, very careful and thorough way. That can't be the way we organise and deliver our healthcare system. So we also want to tackle those structural problems. Part of the problem is funding. At the moment, there's a big difference between who funds what. So the states fund hospitals, the feds fund Medicare. And that crossover and would they, be very... And they cost shift. Yes, confusing. It's, it's confusing for people and it's a cost-shifting exercise. So go back far enough, women would have their blood tests and their ultrasound at the hospital when they're pregnant. Now they get referral through from GPs and have out-of-pocket costs associated with it. 
Rural women have different sorts of out-of-pocket costs. So we're interested in differences uh, in differences in care, differences in out-of-pocket costs, and we're particularly interested in socially disadvantaged and vulnerable women and families. We know we know that people who are uh, have less access to resources broadly, whether that's income or housing, education, doesn't matter, that we know social vulnerability uh, leads to worse outcomes. We also know that if you get a health service right for the most vulnerable in your community, then you get it right for everybody. So our efforts are targeting uh, people who are women who are most vulnerable to socially disadvantaged and vulnerable women. So we've got projects that look at uh, access to continuity of care, who gets it and who doesn't. We've got programs that, projects that look at out-of-pocket costs. What do they look like? What are the differences across the spectrum? What are the differences in terms of models of care? So we really want to tackle all of those elements of the, the structure of the healthcare system. I think what's also super clear to us is that where research funding in Australia is tight, we are a small band of the willing, uh, we have a very clear vision about transforming maternity care collaborative, but what we need to do is make a contribution to that and we really need to pull others with us. So the collaborative is set up to do just that. It's an inclusive collaboration. The only bit you have to really buy into is the sort of the vision and where we're going with this and then come and join us, collaborate with us in research, start to build a broader program of work. We now have uh, representatives from 14 countries who are involved in a particular workforce program called WELM that really looks at midwives' work-related wellbeing, stress and burnout with these representatives from 14 different countries, give us the opportunity to compare data across countries and across models. So I can say confidently, when midwives working in continuity of care models have less stress and burnout. We've got that reporter from New Zealand, we've got that reporter from Australia, Canada's uh, coming through with results, the UK has come through with results, Germany is doing it. So this, this is a growing body of active researchers that come together and share some of their data where appropriate, publish their own country-specific data where that's appropriate, but have a sense that we've got to be all in this together to make change. And in terms of education, we have another large collaboration within that that looks at midwifery education, preparation of midwives for practice, and it's now got 22 universities and the professional colleges participating in that. We've got a program of work rolling out through that. So it's a very busy collaborative, not because we're all from one institution or from one discipline, but in fact because we're exactly the opposite. You can join us because you you understand that uh, this is an all-in effort to transform maternity care, to align maternity care to the needs of women and their families. And it's not currently. So health systems tend to be quite institutionally centric. <sighs> they don't design them bottom-up with and for consumers. And uh, we're lucky in Australia that we've got very active maternity consumers. You're tackling big bureaucracies. We're though, tackling Jenny. big bureaucracies. We're <laughs> tackling big bureaucracies. And recently, I was uh, invited along by some active consumers to the Queensland Human Rights Commissioner about this being an essential human right. And I think we really need to understand that. So as you're a coming community. from that that human rights perspective that underpins what you're doing. 
Yeah, really. it absolutely is a human rights or women's rights or women's sex-based rights issue. And I think often when we talk about equality, we talk about things where women are poorly represented. Well, women are. Women are it here. You know, w- women give birth and uh, midwives are predominantly, not, not solely, but predominantly midwives. And the issues that we face are not like trying to get more people into science more women into science. It's not like that. This is, please focus on maternity. It is the foundational issue in relation to building healthy communities. We totally know that if you get it right for mothers and babies around the time of birth, you reduce chronic disease. You improve mental health over the lifespan. You reduce crime. Uh, 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 A secure child in a secure, loving relationship with a primary care provider is less likely commit crime as a youth so we absolutely know that if you get it right at the beginning of life you set you set children up for a lifetime of social and physical and mental health so that's the premise of things like logan together they've looked at the naught to eight and i'm part of that whole process i was involved in the roadmap in the early days i was a project lead for a couple of groups in that because that's part of our practice translation work worked very heavily with the consumers very heavily with the non-government organisations and we designed a series of community maternal and child health hubs which ticked off, ticks off some of those things from the Shearman report back in 1989. Lack of community services, lack of continuity in midwifery care, closure of rural services and the medicalisation of birth. Those things are still the same things today. So back in 1990, the caesarean section rate nationally was under 20%, just under 20%. Now it's 35%. And there's just no justification for that. Induction rates have gone up. We haven't, we're not doing more caesareans and doing less faucets and vacuums. They've stayed the same. So we've medicalised a process, and in the process of doing that, We've lost the existential value of pregnancy, labour and birth, the transition to motherhood and all that that can mean in terms of setting up family and community for health. And is that part of that feminist underpinning as well for for what you're doing? This really is a a feminist issue? Look, it is totally a feminist issue Uh, and in fact... Uh, one of our collaborators wrote a book. She's a UK consumer um, uh, about birthing like a feminist. So, and it's not to be prescriptive. We're not suggesting for one minute you should be prescriptive. What we're saying is you should have choice and control. And to have choice, you need to have quality, accessible information. You need a healthcare system that enables you to participate in decision-making about your own care. So it's the opposite to prescribing what you should do. It's about really making sure that women are at the centre of care and have choice and control. So, yeah, it's definitely a feminist issue. It's a huge feminist issue, I think, because the reverse happens. If you don't care for women around the time of birth, then you set them up so badly. So you're going to increase rates of uh, post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Our own research shows that about 30% of women report that their birth was traumatic and have three or four trauma symptoms at four to six weeks postpartum. We know there's higher rates of depression and anxiety and all of those feed in very negatively to what's happening more broadly over her life and her 
the life of our children and family. So we do know the reverse is true, that if we don't do it well, we're, we've got problems. So Jenny, what progress have you seen with yeah. the Transforming Maternity Care Collaborative and, and Logan together, these, these projects? Have you been able to, to break down some of these silos to build some of the bridges between these big bureaucracies? Yeah, it would be a false for me to say that no change is happening. So, for instance, the evidence has grown exponentially and is solid, so solid, and to the point where everybody goes, oh, yes, continuity of midwifery care. You know, it's not a point of contention. Um, but how do we make it happen? But how do we <laughs> make it happen? And there are conflicting priorities and vested interest. So there is vested interest in uh, high cesarean section rates. There is vested interests in the use of lots of high-tech in birth. We published a paper recently. We looked at it's called electronic fetal monitoring and it's widely used with no discernible benefit. But it's expensive equipment, then you've got to do all the training, then you've got to do the updates and you have to start to say who's benefiting from this and where does the money flow? So... There is definitely benefits in the status quo and there is vested interest. And it's not just I'm not just talking about big pharma or medical tech companies or the or private medicine. I'm I'm talking about even health bureaucrats. You know, if they can cost shift to the feds and you're a state minister or a state bureaucrat, you know, maybe that makes you look better. So it's incredibly complex. It's like a spider's web, isn't it? It is complicated and uh so therefore the answers won't be simple. Mm. However, I do think that system reform is desired by many and uh, I think there is growing awareness that we need to relook at funding, for instance, and think about bundled options and what that really looks like. So there is movement. And in Australia, there didn't used to be anybody who got continuity of military care. So if 10% or more get it now, that is progress. In, in Queensland, we've really spent quite a lot of time building what I call midwifery leadership. So we have significant strength in Queensland. And now 20% of Queensland women get continuity of midwifery care by a known midwife. 16% of the midwifery workforce work that way. What I guess I'm trying to say is it can't be just midwives and, and local midwifery leaders pushing the barrow. This is about a public health care system. This is about... Uh, equity and access. This is about ensuring that the most vulnerable in our community get the care they need to uh, help them have a healthy life and therefore it needs system change. So we only launched a Transforming Maternity Care Collaborative last year. Uh, obviously we've done a whole lot of work before that but not brought together in such a programmatic way in relation to clarity of vision and I think we will just grow from here. So the idea is uh, come and join us it is an all-in thing. We do believe change is possible, and but it will need system reform. It will need system reform. So, Jenny, what have you seen during COVID? I know it's very early and there's probably not much published data, but from my reading, there seems to have been some very interesting trends, particularly in Queensland, as you mentioned, in, in the demand for home birth as well. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So COVID has brought in interesting times for everybody, very challenging times for everybody. In terms of maternity care, so we're doing a bit of work around this as well, but loads of people are, of course, and two things are happening. The, the positive side of things is it's given opportunity to 
bring in some of the innovations that you have been hoping to bring in for a long time and haven't been able to because we always do it this way. We've seen that in so many things with COVID, haven't we? But that's happening with pregnancy and, and childbirth as well. Correct. That's right. We see it across the board in terms of how work is done and how people live their lives. So, for instance, I think it's opened up a range of opportunities for women to get more home-based care. Even women with quite complex medical needs, they've brought in innovations that enable them to have quite a lot of their care delivered at home. Because they don't want to be at hospital? And they're not, a good, they're not good people to be at hospital. You know, they are often got other risk factors that mean that a hospital is probably not the best thing to do. And we're just trying to reduce traffic, you know, so we're just trying to reduce that need to, for people movement. So those things have happened. I think there are some definite downsides as well in terms of women having access to their midwives. So a lot of the appointment might be done by phone and then a quick physical checkup. And I think that women feel that that's been diminishing their experiences significantly. We're hearing about aberrations and sort of left field activity by, by some health services where they've restricted, say, partners. So... You know, that's just reactive thinking. So that is something that I've heard, even myself, Jenny, acquaintances and friends where partners have not been allowed to be at the birth. I mean, why, why would they be doing that and why is it a problem, I suppose, as well? Yeah, restrictions on partners is um, a knee-jerk reaction. It's just, um, it's just a little panicky moment because, of course, they're living with the woman and will return to living with the woman and the baby uh, after the birth. So some of those have been relatively short-lived, but, the cons- but mostly because the consumers and the midwives have gone aghast and uh, directly to the people who made the decision, but also through the social media, um, ministers for health and those sorts of things. Nevertheless, all of those things, even if the decision only lasts a day, cause a whole lot of ripples of stress and strain and anxiety through the pregnant population. Creating the uncertainty is a stress in itself, even if the decision is quite quickly reversed. Then they had other decisions that the partner could only stay two hours after the birth in the hospital with the woman. There has been growing demand for for home birth, and uh, most states provide a publicly funded home birth services, so they've all experienced increased demand. In Queensland, we're one of the two states that don't yet but that needs to change. There's not publicly funded home birth available in Queensland? No, private midwives do provide it, but it's not publicly available uh, and needs to be. That needs to change. And especially if we're talking about choice of control. And the evidence is clear that for suitable women, home birth is as safe or safer, safer in terms of intervention rates, than hospital birth. So there's no real reason not to do it. It's also cheaper. But even nationally, home birth is a great example because... And nationally, although there might be publicly funded home birth services available, they're very limited in size, very limited in access, very limited in terms of geographical region. So, you know, you're not going to get a home birth in Port Augusta. They tend to be in large urban centres, tend to be in capital cities. So that really undermines the quality of care for women in rural areas. Uh, We've seen across Australia over 20 years closure of rural birthing services and every now and then you hear about a woman who gives birth on the way to her her nearest maternity facility by the side of the road. So all of that is 
unacceptable way to design your maternity services. Back in about 2005, they tried to close, probably tried several times since, uh, Mariba Maternity Service in far north Queensland. The community were amazing. They rallied, they held a meeting in the town hall and they got it reopened. But they also know, and the doctors in the town knew, that if we lose our maternity service, then we lose our capacity. You know, you have less GPs, you don't have visiting specialists, you turn your local hospital into an aged care home. So I've also heard that there's some concerning reports about women having to give birth without a midwife or a doctor because they, they can't afford a private midwife, as you mentioned, or they're, they're fearful of giving birth in hospital. Is that a growing trend as well? So there's a, it's called free birth. When women choose to not come near any health professionals or health services, it's called free birth. And I think it relates to a strong... So, so two things. Maybe they can't afford a private midwife. And the other element of that is that the health service is not offering them trustworthy care. So they have low levels of confidence and trust in the healthcare system. And to me, that says it all, really. Like, they've really, the health service has really got to say, who are we designing this for? The women who feel most fearful of coming near health professionals or hospitals fall into what I call that category of the most socially disadvantaged and vulnerable. They are vulnerable. If we can't extend care and build a trusting relationship with those women who need us most, and quite a lot of those women, I've either heard stories or, in fact, have experienced traumatic birth themselves. So they're not going there again. And I, prior to being an academic, I was a midwife, a clinician, a midwife for many, many years uh, in Scotland and here in Australia. And for 10 of those years, I was a midwife in private practice myself. They called us then in those days, we called ourselves as well, independent midwives. And I quite like the term, I have to say. <laughs> I still like the term. Uh, so as an independent midwife, I'd have two groups of women fundamentally. The women having their baby the first time who knew they wanted uh, relationship-based care, they wanted choice and control, but they fundamentally saw this as a natural and normal process and expected to navigate it as such. Then there was a group of women who had experienced the healthcare system previously. Because if you were having a second baby and the first time in the health service was all fine, you just, why would you pay for a private midwife? You just trot back to that the second time. But so there were typically women who had had a traumatic birth in their first pregnancy. First, or first, sometimes first and second. You know, sometimes they were, had a few traumatic experiences, and got to a point. Sometimes the unplanned pregnancy, where they knew they couldn't do that again. It wasn't. It was very, very sort of visceral, and the distress was very raw. That didn't mean that they were going to reject hospital at all costs, uh, and they were just going to. If they had a complication, they were just going to sort of pass away at home. But they were not going to go in without their own special person with them, which was their midwife. So the health system really needs to have a close look at itself. 30% of women report their birth was traumatic. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. We have high rates of antenatal and postnatal depression. Unacceptable. You're having a baby. I'm not talking about the women who have pre-existing mental health 
concerns. Obviously, they need care too, and they need care tailored to their needs. But if you have no history of mental health problems, particularly anxiety or depression, and you have a baby, and then you have problems with anxiety or depression... You've got to say, are we just not providing women with the care that they need? We send them home with a new baby, lock them in the suburbs with a new baby, and babies are very demanding, and then say, OK, we'll just get on with it. And particularly with COVID, it's amplified. Totally. That, that isolation is amplified. Totally amplified. So midwives can really help with that if that continuity of care... Totally. And that's what we're available. hoping to see with these Logan Community Maternal and Child Health Hubs, that not only do they have relationship-based care with their midwife across the course of their pregnancy and into motherhood, but they also also have an opportunity to come together as women and families and all of these uh, services are based in NGOs, so non-government organisations, Access Gateway, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Service, uh, Benevolent Society, uh, Māori Pacifica Group at Hosanna, Village Connect, to help again create those wider supports that women and families need when the new baby's on the way or arrives. So you've got connections with all of those cultural groups to make that midwifery care, that maternity care specific? Sure. So we do have, we, we, again, if you come back to who needs care the most and who's most vulnerable in this system, then obviously women who come from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, women in poverty, women with other problems, young women, women with drug and alcohol use problems... So, you know, we have to really cater for all women and you're not going to do that without individualised care, which is what continuity medical care does. But it has to connect to community in some meaningful way, which is why you need to get services out of hospitals, into communities and into existing community organisations that have that range of wraparound services that really facilitate whole of health rather than just sort of physical health. I mean, what I find interesting, Jenny, is when you think of the public health messaging about the safest place for you to give birth is in hospital, and I mean, that is so strong. And like you say, that the choice and control, obviously women are craving something more. They're looking for a model beyond that. You're quite right. Women are craving something more. And all you have to go back to is where we started this conversation. In 1989, there was a Shearman report of maternity services in New South Wales, and every report since has said the same thing. But importantly, and the bit I probably didn't stress sufficiently, is whenever they open this review process up, the flood of consumers, individual women and women as representative groups, the flood of submissions, like when they did a Senate inquiry that ended up with a report called Rocking the Cradle, the, there was like 400 and something rather submissions from consumers. They had more submissions from the general public to that Senate inquiry than they do to anything else. So women come out in droves to say the same sort of thing as groups, groups of women, and they say the same sort of thing individually. So it's high time for change, hence the collaborative. We're, we're making a contribution. We don't see that we're the whole answer because, in fact, it's not. It's not the stalwarts and leaders of change that who bear the responsibility for this. We have a a public healthcare system in Australia, and it should be designed around the needs of the recipients. So really, I guess what I'm trying to say is this is executive management, this is health services policy, this is health funding arrangements, this is at the highest level of a system design. But it will save the taxpayer money, it will improve the 
health and work life of midwives and other maternity professionals. Most importantly, of course, it will improve the outcomes for mothers and babies and families, which sets them up for a healthier life. It makes a lot of sense, Jenny. Good luck so much with your Transforming Maternity Care Collaborative. I think it's wonderful the work that you're doing and, and the research that you've got to, to back up what you're, what you're trying to achieve as well. So thank you so much for joining us today on The Gender Card. You're welcome. Thank you very much. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.